Chapter Twenty Four of Yesterday Framed in Today by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four. Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Although there was no further need for watching, one of the watchers could not bring himself to leave entirely the desolated house. David Holman took a room in a hotel in town and spent the most of the hours of daylight at the Rothwell homestead. There was eminent reason for this, and it was, of course, eminently proper that Mr. Holman, whose father was connected with the same business, should be the one to take in charge the business matters so suddenly deserted by their chief. The season was at its height, and a responsible head was most important, so the sisters could only express their grateful thanks to David for this added kindness. He saw almost as much of them as though he had been of the family, and he was evidently the one of all their friends on whom they were disposed to lean. They talked together about many things, but were silent concerning that one which lay heavily on the hearts of all. Why had the friend on whom their eager hopes centered utterly failed them? David was by no means anxious to break the silence. He felt disappointed and bewildered. If in his wisdom the master had determined not to come to their aid, why had he not at least sent tender messages and assurances of unfailing love? Instead, had he not himself seen him turn from the news with an unmoved, almost an indifferent face? One evening Mary Rothwell suddenly spoke her thoughts. Ours has been a strange experience. I could quiet my heart with the thought that my brother is indeed in heaven, if only our friend had come to us and told us so, or sent us at least one comforting word. It is very, very strange, but it must be right. Yes, said David, keeping back a sigh. We must give him at least the consideration that we do other friends. When we cannot understand their acts, we can believe that their intentions were right. He does not make mistakes, answered Mary Rothwell, and she arose at once, as though no more words could be trusted then. Mrs. Simmons was not so reticent. She openly declared that she had not expected such treatment, so fond as he had been of their brother, and so intimate in their home. It was all perfectly unaccountable. The fourth day after the funeral, David Holman was in the grapery directing some delicate work, when Mrs. Simmons came to the entrance and motioned him to her. "'Could you not go in for a little while?' she said, "'and help poor Mary. The room is full of callers, people who have come to comfort us, poor fools. I bore it as long as I could. Mary is doing her utmost to make them all feel that they are kind. If you could go and do some of the talking, I know it would be a relief.' Of course David signified his willingness to help in any possible way and waiting only to give certain directions to the men, he went to his new duties. He was very slightly acquainted with a few of the guests, others he had not met, but he forced himself to take the lead in conversation, repaid by a swift glance from Mary's eyes, which he could interpret, and by her lapse into almost total silence. Fully engaged as he was, with every sense on the alert to ward off direct appeals to Mary, Mr. Holman yet became aware presently that something unusual was going on outside. A boy came hurriedly up the walk, ran around to the side door, and held a conversation with someone, presumably Mrs. Simmons, 
for she almost immediately ran down the road in the direction whence the messenger had come. David carried on his divided train of thought and talked on. After a brief absence, Mrs. Simmons returned almost on the run, and from the next room summoned Mary to come to her. The call was low, but Mary, seated near the door, evidently heard it, and without any attempt at explanation, arose quickly and vanished. In a very few minutes thereafter, both sisters hurried down the walk. David regretted that one of the callers had changed her seat for one near the window, and now reported this singular fact. "'Poor creatures,' said another. "'How utterly broken down they are! It is no wonder, I am sure. They depended so entirely on their brother.' "'I suppose they have gone to the grave,' said the friend by the window. "'They went in that direction.' Then an energetic woman spoke. "'How nervous Mrs. Simmons is!' she cannot control herself as well as Mary can. I declare I tremble for her, lest her brain will give way. Don't you think some of us ought to walk down that way? It seems cruel to leave those two poor things there alone. Some of us who are best acquainted with them might follow at a distance. Don't you think so, Mr. Holman? Or perhaps you might go to them? I do hate to have poor Mary left alone to look after her sister. She seems so very nervous today." Thus appealed to, David admitted that he was afraid some news had come to the sisters to trouble them. It was not their habit to hurry away in this manner, and if the friends would excuse him, he would see if help was needed. This was the signal for the callers to take leave, and to David's annoyance several of them followed him at what they probably thought was a respectful distance. What he saw, as he passed the line of trees that had obscured his vision, set his heart to beating in great bounds. Just a few steps away, surrounded by his immediate followers, was the man for whose coming they had longed and prayed. At his feet, in a perfect agony of weeping, was Mary Rothwell. David, as he drew near, heard her sob out her pitiful cry. "'Oh, if you had been here, my brother would not have died!' The face of the man who listened was full of sympathy and sorrow. He asked to be shown the way to the spot where they had laid his friend, and before they reached it, his tears were mingling with theirs. David, keeping in the background, was able to overhear much of the undertone of talk. Their followers had largely increased. Evidently, it had been noised through the streets that the mysterious friend of the family had arrived, and curiosity-seekers could not hold themselves away, even from a grave. "'Look at that man,' one said. "'The tears are rolling down his cheeks. They say he was very fond of poor Mr. Rothwell. Why didn't he come, I wonder, and try to cure him? Whatever they say of him, he really has performed some wonderful cures.' Suddenly all voices were hushed, for the sisters and their friend had reached the grave, and his hands were clasped as for prayer. "'Father,' he said, "'I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I know that thou hearest me always, but because of the people who stand by I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me.' Was ever prayer like that heard at a grave before? There was no mention of the mourning ones, or hint of their need for comfort in their great affliction. The listeners looked at one another, startled, shocked, but if the prayer had astonished them, what shall be said of the next act of the mysterious man? Advancing toward the grave, 
he spoke in a clear, calm voice, not to any of the people gathered about, but to the silent occupant of the tomb, and his words were a brief, authoritative direction to come forth. Then the awe-stricken people broke, some of them into screams of uncontrollable terror, some ran from the spot, and others dropped in dead faints. For at that voice of command a movement was distinctly heard in that quiet house where death was expected to reign until the judgment day, and the man whom they had laid away in the grave came forth and stood among them. Of what use for a common pen to try to describe the scene in the Rothwell home that evening, when the reunited family gathered for their evening meal? "'Have you written to Francis?' Philip Nelson asked his friend David, the morning following, as they stood bidding each other good-bye. "'No,' said David. "'I have written to no one. I cannot. There are some experiences that cannot be put into words. But I am going home to-morrow. I shall try to tell her.' Meantime, in some respects, a stranger scene than that which took place at the grave was being enacted in the city near at hand. A hastily called meeting of the leading men was being held, and prominent among the speakers was Felix Masters. He had taken it upon himself to set forth the dangers and difficulties of the situation. The strange man who had been wandering over the country for many weeks had now succeeded in rousing the people to the very highest pitch of excitement by his last act. It was not to be denied that the man possessed some power by which he accomplished that which had been heretofore beyond human skill. But there was not the slightest doubt about its being a power for evil, a power which, if allowed to be used unmolested, would turn their cities and their homes upside down. The entire country was in danger." What the man was after was undoubtedly power of another kind than that which he now exercised. He meant to rule. What would the leaders think of themselves if they sat with folded hands and allowed this stranger to hypnotize the hearts and brains of the common people until they arose in power and there was an insurrection of the bloodiest sort? Undoubtedly the hour had come for action. They all knew what was now claimed by the fanatics, and this meeting had been called to see how best to meet the emergency with that promptness which the danger demanded. The president of the council arose to respond to Mr. Masters's statement. His manner was quieter, and his speech less inflammable. In the main he confessed himself to be in accord with the last speaker, although he by no means took so gloomy a view of affairs. Of course they were bound to arrest this tide of error and superstition by which the country was being flooded, and undoubtedly they would do so. The strange man had proved himself a dangerous enemy, and of course the country must be given the first thought. Still, he advised very careful management. No good could result from antagonizing the common people. Their excitement must be soothed and their prejudices catered to, in a degree, in order to prevent an uprising. Other speakers followed, and many plans of action were discussed. All seemed to be agreed that the dangerous stranger must answer for his crimes with his life. But the exact way in which this should be accomplished was not determined, further than that a careful official eye should be kept upon him, and his arrest made so soon as it would be safe to do so. 
yet the crime which was the occasion of this remarkable meeting was the restoring to life and health of a prominent citizen of their district who had been dead for four days it is true that this seems perfectly incredible but when one is simply recording well-authenticated history what is one to do felix masters went away from the meeting by no means satisfied he expressed himself gloomily the next evening when he visited the town near which the holmans lived and took occasion to call upon them there is too much talk and too little action he said i am convinced that our policy of delay is dangerous i find myself awakening each morning with a sense of relief that no positive upheaval of the country has yet taken place why do you really fear an outbreak of any sort mrs holman asked incredulously indeed i do and an outbreak such as it will be participated in by the very lowest classes will i assure you be something to dread the apathy of the leading men is amazing a few vigorous steps now and the whole affair would be crushed but the time is coming when it will require the loss of hundreds even thousands of lives to put it down one needs only to travel through the country as my friend mr compton has been doing to see how this astonishing bit of treason is being worked up the man is keen-brained and as wise as a serpent in his methods and already some of whom we had reason to expect better have fallen his victims i assure you i am astonished and appalled over our apathy in this matter now having said so much may i speak even more plainly mr holman i came here to-night hoping to meet your son i wanted to tell him that his name is being quoted by outsiders as one who upholds this proposed insurrection it may be all gossip of course still he is intimate with that unfortunately conspicuous family the rothwells and i am told that he still meets on friendly terms that young trader nelson who used to be in our employ it is dangerous business mr holman and as a friend of your family i wanted to assure him of it and beg him to take pains to state that he is not in any way in collusion with their schemes the father's face was very pale as he heard this warning but he was not a man who cared to sit and listen to the criticisms of others upon his son he replied with exceeding gravity and also with marked coldness that he believed his own position was well known but that it ought to be remembered that his son was a man not a boy and was responsible for his own opinions mr masters made haste to explain that of course he understood all this and his exceeding anxiety for their welfare must be his excuse for this friendly warning he had thought it possible that young mr holman did not appreciate the gravity of the situation then having made the little family as miserable as he well could he took his departure the following day brought david and as his father listened with interest to the admirable business plans he had been able to carry out he told himself that david had fully as keen a brain as that puppy of a master's and had as good a right to do his own thinking at the same time with admirable consistency he coldly told his heart that david would have to choose between him and the strange craze which seemed to have partly turned his brain as for david what he thought or what he had decided he kept to himself and gave his entire time and apparently all his energies to his father's business 
this however was only because his present duty seemed to be to wait holding himself in readiness for whatever the future had in store for him so far as miriam brownlee was concerned she had herself checked his way since he was not to return to her until he disclaimed all interest in his new friend there was in the midst of his sadness a thrill of solemn joy at his heart as he recognized that this new friend was for time and eternity in taking this stand he believed that he fully realized the situation he had kept himself posted as to what was going on in the world and as he was as firm a believer in satanic influence as was felix masters himself he could only feel that the extraordinary opposition to a man who had not only opened the eyes of the blind but actually raised the dead to life was the influence of satan upon their hearts with his bible before him open to the words then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped in the light of the facts which were already blazing before them what else was one to think meantime all efforts to arrest the disturber of the peace seemed to have been futile he and his followers had gone quietly away again but it was generally understood that this was only a lull in the coming storm matters were in this state when david received a letter from mr rothwell inviting him to be present at a series of special meetings in the church and announcing that their friend was to be with them he knew of the conspiracy against him understands it i think better than we do the letter said yet he was coming and they his friends meant to rally closely about him and do for him what they could would david join them while david was still busy with his mail his father asked if he had not noticed mr rothwell's handwriting among his letters yes sir replied david and without note or comment passed the letter to him in his own mind he had become settled that final decisions must now be made End of chapter twenty four